Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week, we bring you The Fly and The Dove's Nest by Catherine Mansfield. The Fly has been touted as the perfect short story by some. It definitely has an impact on the reader, or listener in this case. The Dove's Nest is an interesting commentary on the issue of the company of men from the women's perspective. This nest has all female servants, a widow, her female companion, and her daughter. When a gentleman comes calling, the doves are all aflutter. Great fun, but with an interesting message in the undercurrent. And now, The Fly by Catherine Mansfield. You're very snug in here, piped old Mr. Woodifield, and he peered out of the great green leather armchair by his friend the boss's desk as a baby peers out of its pram. His talk was over. It was time for him to be off. But he didn't want to go. Since he had retired, since his stroke, the wife and the girls kept him boxed up in the house every day of the week except Tuesday. On Tuesday, he was dressed and brushed and allowed to cut back to the city for the day. Though what he did there, the wife and girls couldn't imagine. Made a nuisance of himself to his friends, they supposed. Well, perhaps so. All the same, we cling to our last pleasures as the tree clings to its last leaves. So there sat old Woodfield, smoking a cigar and staring almost greedily at the boss, who rolled in his office chair, stout, rosy, five years older than he, and still going strong still at the helm. It did one good to see him. Wistfully, admiringly, the old voice added, It's snug in here, upon my word. Yes, it's comfortable enough, agreed the boss, and he flipped the Financial Times with a paper knife. As a matter of fact, he was proud of his room. He liked to have it admired, especially by old Woodfield. It gave him a feeling of deep, solid satisfaction to be planted there in the midst of it, in full view of that frail old figure in the muffler. I've had it done up lately, he explained, as he had explained for the past how many weeks? New carpet, and he pointed to the bright red carpet with a pattern of large white rings. New furniture, and he nodded towards the massive bookcase and the table with legs like twisted treacle. Electric heating, He waved almost exultantly toward the five transparent, pearly sausages glowing so softly in the tilted copper pan. But he did not draw old Woodfield's attention to the photograph over the table of a grave-looking boy in uniform, standing in one of those spectral photographers' parks, with photographers' storm clouds behind him. It was not new. It had been there for over six years. There was something I wanted to tell you, said old Woodfield, and his eyes grew dim remembering. Now what was it? I had it in my mind when I started out this morning. His hands began to tremble, and patches of red showed above his beard. Poor old chap, he's on his last pins, thought the boss. And feeling kindly, he winked at the old man and said jokingly, I tell you what. I've got a little drop of something here that'll do you good before you go out into the cold again. 
It's beautiful stuff. It wouldn't hurt a child. He took a key off his watch chain, unlocked a cupboard below his desk, and drew forth a dark, squat bottle. That's the medicine, said he. And the man from whom I got it told me on the strict QT it came from the cellars of Windsor Castle. Old Woodfield's mouth fell open at the sight. He couldn't have looked more surprised if the boss had produced a rabbit. It's whiskey, ain't it? He piped feebly. The boss turned the bottle and lovingly showed him the label. Whiskey it was. Do you know, said he, peering up at the boss wonderingly, they won't let me touch it at home. And he looked as though he was going to cry. Ah, that's where we know a bit more than the ladies, cried the boss, swooping across for two tumblers that stood on the table with the water bottle and pouring a generous finger into each. Drink it down, it'll do you good. And don't put any water with it. It's sacrilege to tamper with stuff like this. Ah. He tossed his off, pulled out his handkerchief, hastily wiped his mustache, and cocked an eye at old Waterfield, who was rolling his in his chaps. The old man swallowed, was silent a moment, and then said faintly, It's nutty. But it warmed him. It creeped into his chill old brain. He remembered. That was it, he said, heaving himself out of his chair. I thought you'd like to know. The girls were in Belgium last week, having a look at poor Reggie's grave. And they happened to come across your boys. They're quite near each other, it seems. Old Woodfield paused, but the boss made no reply. Only a quiver in his eyelid showed that he'd heard. The girls were delighted with the way the place is kept, piped the old voice. Beautifully looked after. Couldn't be better if they were at home. You have not been across, have you? No, no. For various reasons, the boss had not been across. There's miles of it, quavered old Woodafield. And it's all as neat as a garden. Flowers growing on all the graves. Nice broad paths. It was plain from his voice how much he liked a nice broad path. The pause came again. Then the old man brightened wonderfully. Do you know what the hotel made the girls pay for a pot of jam? He piped. Ten francs. Robbery, I call it. It was a little pot, so Gertrude said. No bigger than half a crown. And she hadn't taken more than a spoonful when they charged her ten francs. Gertrude brought the pot away with her to teach him a lesson. Quite right, too. It's trading on our feelings. They think because we're over there having a look around, we're ready to pay anything. That's what it is. And he turned towards the door. Quite right, quite right, cried the boss. Though what was quite right, he hadn't the least idea. He came around by his desk, followed the shuffling footsteps to the door, and saw the old fellow out. Woodfield was gone. For a long moment, the boss stayed, staring at nothing, while the gray-haired office messenger, watching him, dodged in and out of his cubbyhole like a dog that expected to be taken for a run. Then, I'll see nobody for half an hour, Macy, said the boss. Understand? Nobody at all. Very good, sir, 
The door shut. The firm, heavy steps recrossed the bright carpet. The fat body plumped down in the spring chair, and leaning forward, the boss covered his face with his hands. He wanted, he intended, he had arranged to weep. It had been a terrible shock to him when old Waterfield sprang that remark upon him about the boy's grave. It was exactly as though the earth had opened and he had seen the boy lying there with Woodfield's girls staring down at him. For it was strange. Although over six years had passed away, the boss never thought of the boy except as lying unchanged, unblemished in his uniform, asleep forever. My son, groaned the boss. But no tears came yet. In the past, in the first months and even years after the boy's death, he had only to say those words to be overcome by such grief that nothing short of a violent fit of weeping could relieve him. Time, he had declared then, he had told everybody, could make no difference. Other men perhaps might recover, might live their loss down, but not he. How was it possible? His boy was an only son. Ever since his birth, the boss had worked at building up this business for him. It had no other meaning if it was not for the boy. Life itself had come to no other meaning. How on earth could he have slaved, denied himself, kept going all those years, without the promise forever before him of the boy's stepping into his shoes and carrying on where he left off? And that promise had been so near being fulfilled. The boy had been in the office learning the ropes for a year before the war. Every morning they had started off together. They'd come back by the same train. And what congratulations he had received as the boy's father. No wonder he had taken to it marvelously. As to his popularity with the staff, every man jack of them down to old Macy couldn't make enough of the boy. And he wasn't in the least spoilt. No, he was just his bright, natural self, with the right word for everybody, with that boyish look and his habit of saying, Simply splendid. But that was all over and done with, as though it never had been. The day had come when Macy had handed him the telegram that brought the whole place crashing about his head. Deeply regret to inform you. And he had left the office a broken man, with his life in ruins. Six years ago. Six years. How quickly time passed. It might have happened yesterday. The boss took his hands from his face. He was puzzled. Something seemed to be wrong with him. He wasn't feeling as he wanted to feel. He decided to get up and have a look at the boy's photograph. But it wasn't a favorite photograph of his. The expression was unnatural. It was cold, even stern-looking. The boy had never looked like that. At that moment... The boss noticed that a fly had fallen into his broad inkpot and was trying feebly but desperately to clamber out again. Help, help, said those struggling legs, but the sides of the inkpot were wet and slippery. It fell back again and began to swim. The boss took up a pen, picked the fly out of the ink, and shook it onto a piece of blotting paper. For a fraction of a second it lay still on the dark patch that oozed around it. Then the front legs waved, took hold, and pulling its small, sodden body up, 
it began the immense task of cleaning the ink from its wings. Over and under, over and under went a leg along a wing, as the stone goes over and under the scythe. Then there was a pause, while the fly, seeming to stand on the tips of its toes, tried to expand first one wing and then the other. It succeeded at last, and sitting down it began like a minute cat to clean its face. Now one could imagine that the little front legs rubbed against each other lightly, joyfully. The horrible danger was over. It had escaped. It was ready for life again. But just then the boss had an idea. He plunged his pen back into the ink, leaned his thick wrist on the blotting paper, and as the fly tried its wings, down came a great heavy blot. What would it make of that? What indeed? The little beggar seemed absolutely cowed, stunned, and afraid to move because of what would happen next. But then, as if painfully, it dragged itself forward. The front legs waved, caught hold, and more slowly this time, the task began from the beginning. He's a plucky little devil, thought the boss, and he felt a real admiration for the fly's courage. That was the way to tackle things. That was the right spirit. Never say die. It was only a question of... But the fly had again finished its laborious task, and the boss had just time to refill his pen to shake fair and square on the newly cleaned body yet another dark drop. What about it this time? A painful moment of suspense followed. But behold, the front legs were again waving. The boss felt a rush of relief. He leaned over the fly and said to it tenderly, You artful little b- And he actually had the brilliant notion of breathing on it to help the drying process. All the same, there was something timid and weak about its efforts now, and the boss decided that this time should be the last, as he dipped the pen deep into the ink pot. It was. The last blot fell on the soaked blotting paper, and the draggled fly lay in it and did not stir. The back legs were stuck to the body. The front legs were not to be seen. Come on, said the boss. Look sharp. And he stirred it with his pen. In vain. Nothing happened or was likely to happen. The fly was dead. The boss lifted the corpse on the end of the paper knife and flung it into the waste paper basket. But such a grinding feeling of wretchedness seized him that he felt positively frightened. He started forward and pressed the bell for Macy. Bring me some fresh blotting paper, he said sternly. And look sharp about it. And while the old dog padded away, he fell to wondering what it was he had been thinking about before. What was it? It was... He took out his handkerchief and passed it inside his collar. For the life of him, he could not remember. And now, the dove's nest. After lunch, Millie and her mother were sitting as usual on the balcony beyond the salon, admiring for the 500th time the stalks, the roses, the small bright grass beneath the palms, and the oranges against a wavy line of blue, when a card was brought them by Maria. 
Visitors at the Villa Martine were very rare. True, the English clergyman, Mr. Sandeman, had called, and he had come a second time with his wife to tea. But an awful thing had happened on that second occasion. Mother had made a mistake. She had said, More tea, Mr. Sandybags? Oh, what a frightful thing to have happened. How could she have done it? Millie still flamed at the thought. And he had evidently not forgiven them. He'd never come again. So this card put them both into a flutter. Mr. Walter Proger, they read. And then an American address, so very much abbreviated that neither of them understood it. Walter Proger? But they'd never heard of him. Mother looked from the card to Millie. Proger, dear? She asked mildly, as though helping Millie to a slice of a never-before-tasted pudding. And Millie seemed to be holding her plate back in the way she answered. I don't know, Mother. These are the occasions, said Mother, becoming a little flustered. When one does so feel the need of our English servants. Now if I could just say, what is he like, Annie? I should know whether to see him or not. But he may be some common man selling something, one of those American inventors for peeling things, you know, dear. Or he may even be some kind of foreign sharper. Mother winced at the hard, bright little word, as though she had given herself a dig with her embroidery scissors. But here, Marie smiled at Millie and murmured, C'est un très beau, monsieur. What does she say, dear? She says he looks very nice, mother. Well, we'd better, began mother. Where is he now, I wonder? Marie answered. In the vestibule, madame. In the hall. Mother jumped up, seriously alarmed. In the hall, with all those valuable little foreign things that didn't belong to them, scattered over the tables. Show him in, Marie. Come, Millie, come, dear. We will see him in the salon. Oh, why isn't Miss Anderson here? Almost wailed mother. But Miss Anderson, mother's new companion, never was on the spot when she was wanted. She had been engaged to be a comfort, a support to them both, fond of traveling, a cheerful disposition, a good packer, and so on. And then, when they had come all this way and taken the Villa Martine and moved in, she had turned out to be a Roman Catholic. Half her time, more than half, was spent wearing out the knees of her skirts in cold churches. It really was too... The door opened. A middle-aged, clean-shaven, very well-dressed stranger stood bowing before them. His bow was stately. Millie saw it pleased Mother very much. She bowed her Queen Alexandra bow back. As for Millie, she could never bow. She smiled, feeling shy, but deeply interested. Have I the pleasure, said the stranger very courteously, with a strong American accent, of speaking with Mrs. Wyndham Fawcett? I am Mrs. Fawcett, said Mother graciously, and this is my daughter, Mildred. Pleased to meet you, Mrs. Fawcett. And the stranger shot a fresh, chill hand at Millie, who grasped it just in time before it was gone again. Won't you sit down, said Mother, and she waved faintly at all the gilt chairs. Thank you, I will, said the stranger. Down he sat, still solemn, crossing his legs, 
and, most surprisingly, his arms as well. His face looked at them over his dark arms as over a gate. Millie, sit down, dear. So Millie sat down, too, on the Madame Ricomer couch and traced a fillet lace flower with her finger. There was a little pause. She saw the stranger swallow. Mother's fan opened and shut. Then he said, I took the liberty of calling Mrs. Fawcett because I had the pleasure of your husband's acquaintance in the States when he was lecturing there some years ago. I should very much like to renew our, well, I venture to hope we might call it friendship. Is he with you at present? Are you expecting him out? I noticed his name was not mentioned in the local paper. But I put that down to a foreign custom, perhaps, giving precedent to the lady. And here the stranger looked as though he might be going to smile. But as a matter of fact, it was extremely awkward. Mother's mouth shook. Millie squeezed her hands between her knees, but she watched hard from under her eyebrows. Good, noble little mummy. How Millie admired her as she heard her say, gently and quite simply, I am sorry to say, my husband died two years ago. Mr. Proger gave a great start. Did he? He thrust out his upper lip, frowned, pondered. I am truly sorry to hear that, Mrs. Fawcett. I hope you believe me when I say I had no idea your husband had passed over. Of course, Mother softly stroked her skirt. I do trust, said Mr. Proger, more seriously still, that my inquiry didn't give you too much pain. No, no, it's quite all right, said the gentle voice. But Mr. Proger insisted. You're sure? You're positive? At that, Mother raised her head and gave him one of her still, bright, exalted glances that Millie knew so well. I'm not in the least hurt she said, as one might say it from the midst of the fiery furnace. Mr. Proger looked relieved. He changed his attitude and continued. I hope this regrettable circumstance will not deprive me of your... Oh, certainly not. We shall be delighted. We are always so pleased to know anyone who... Mother gave a little bound, a little flutter. She flew from her shadowy branch onto a sunny one. Is this your first visit to the Riviera? It is, said Mr. Proger. The fact is, I was in Florence until recently, but I took a heavy cold there. Florence is so damp, cooed Mother. And the doctor recommended I should come here for the sunshine before I started home. The sun is so very lovely here, agreed Mother enthusiastically. Well, I don't think we get too much of it, said Mr. Proger dubiously and two lines showed at his lips. I seem to have been sitting around in my hotel more days than I care to count. Ah, hotels are so very trying, said Mother, and she drooped sympathetically at the thought of a lonely man in a hotel. You are alone here? she asked, gently, just in case. One never knew. It was better to be on the safe side, the tactful side but her fears were groundless. Oh, yes, I'm alone, cried Mr. Proger, more heartily than he had spoken yet, and he took a speck of thread off his immaculate trouser leg. 
Something in his voice puzzled Millie. What was it? Still, the scenery is so very beautiful, said Mother, that one really does feel the need of friends. I was only saying to my daughter yesterday, I could live here for years without going outside the garden gate. It is all so beautiful. Is that so? said Mr. Proger soberly. He added, You have a very charming villa. And he glanced round the salon. Is all this antique furniture genuine, may I ask? I believe so, said Mother. I was certainly given to understand it was. Yes, we love our villa. But of course it is very large for two. That is to say, three ladies. My companion, Miss Anderson, is with us. But unfortunately, she is a Roman Catholic, and so she is out most of the time. Mr. Proger bowed as one who agreed that Roman Catholics were very seldom in. But I am so fond of space, continued Mother, and so is my daughter. We both love large rooms and plenty of them, don't we, Millie? This time Mr. Proger looked at Millie quite cordially and remarked, Yes, young people like plenty of room to run about. He got up, put one hand behind his back, slapped the other upon it, and went over to the balcony. You've a view of the sea from here, he observed. The ladies might well have noticed it. The whole Mediterranean swung before the windows. We are so fond of the sea, said Mother, getting up too. Mr. Proger looked towards Millie. Do you see those yachts, Miss Fawcett? Millie saw them. Do you happen to know what they're doing? asked Mr. Proger. What they were doing? What a funny question. Millie stared and bit her lip. They're racing, said Mr. Proger, and this time he did actually smile at her. Oh, yes, of course, stammered Millie. Of course they are. She knew that. Well, they're not always at it, said Mr. Proger good-humoredly, and he turned to Mother and began to make a ceremonious farewell. I wonder, hesitated Mother, folding her little hands and eyeing him, if you would care to lunch with us, if you would not be too dull with two ladies, we should be so very pleased. Mr. Proger became intensely serious again. He seemed to brace himself to meet the luncheon invitation. Thank you very much, Mrs. Fawcett. I should be delighted. That will be very nice, said Mother warmly. Let me see. Today is Monday, isn't it, Millie? Would Wednesday suit you? Mr. Proger replied. It would suit me excellently to lunch with you on Wednesday, Mrs. Fawcett. Uh, meaty, I presume, as they call it? Oh, no. We keep our English times. At one o'clock, said Mother. And that being arranged, Mr. Proger became more and more ceremonious and bowed himself out of the room. Mother rang for Marie to look after him, and a moment later the big glass hall door shut. Well, said Mother. She was all smiles. Little smiles, like butterflies, alighting on her lips and gone again. That was an adventure, Millie, wasn't it, dear? And I thought he was such a very charming man. Didn't you? Millie made a little face at Mother and rubbed her eye. Of course you did. You must have, dear. And his appearance was so satisfactory, wasn't it? 
Mother was obviously enraptured. I mean, he looks so very well kept. Did you notice his hands? Every nail shone like a diamond. I must say, I do like to see. She broke off. She came over to Millie and patted her big collar straight. You do think it was right of me to ask him to lunch, don't you, dear? said Mother, pathetically. Mother made her feel so big, so tall. But she was tall. She could pick Mother up in her arms. Sometimes rare moods came when she did, swooped on Mother who squeaked like a mouse and even kicked. But not lately. Very seldom now. It was so strange, said Mother. There was the still, bright, exalted glance again. I suddenly seemed to hear Father say to me, Ask him to lunch. And then there was some warning. I think it was about the wine. But that I didn't catch. Very unfortunate, she added mournfully. She put her hand on her breast. She bowed her head. Father is still so near, she whispered. Millie looked out of the window. She hated Mother going on like this, but of course she couldn't say anything. Out of the window there was the sea and the sunlight silver on the palms, like water dripping from silver oars. Millie felt a yearning. What was it? It was like a yearning to fly. But Mother's voice brought her back to the salon, to the gilt chairs, the gilt couches, sconces, cabinets, the tables with the heavy sweet flowers, the faded brocade, the pink-spotted Chinese dragons on the mantelpiece, and the two Turks' heads in the fireplace that supported the broad logs. I think a leg of lamb would be nice, don't you, dear? said Mother. The lamb is so very small and delicate just now, and men like nothing so much as plain roast meat. Yvonne prepares it so nicely, too, with that little frill of paper lace around the top of the leg. It always reminds me of something... I can't think what, but it certainly makes it look very attractive indeed. Wednesday came, and the flutter that Mother and Millie had felt over the visiting card extended to the whole villa. Yes, it was not too much to say that the whole villa thrilled and fluttered at the idea of having a man to lunch. Old flat-footed Yvonne came waddling back from the market with a piece of gorgonzola in so perfect a condition that when she found Marie in the kitchen, she flung down her great basket, snatched up the morsel, and held it rustling in its paper to her quivering bosom. J'ai un morceau de gogozola, she panted, rolling her eyes as though she invited the heavens themselves to look down upon it. I have a piece of gogonzola here for the prince, my daughter. And hissing the word prince like lightning, she thrust the morsel under Marie's nose, Marie, who was a delicate creature, almost swooned at the shock. Do you think, cried Yvonne scornfully, that I would ever buy such cheese pour ces dames? Never, never, never in my life. Her sausage finger wagged before her nose, and she minced in a dreadful imitation of Mother's French. We have none of us large appetites, Yvonne. We are very fond of boiled eggs and mashed potatoes and a nice plain salad. Ah, bah! With a snort of contempt, she flung away her shawl, rolled up her sleeves, and began unpacking the basket. 
The dining room was a large room paneled in dark wood. It had a massive mantelpiece and carved chairs covered in crimson damask. On the heavy polished table stood an oval glass dish decorated with little gilt swags. This dish, which it was Marie's duty to keep filled with fresh flowers, fascinated her. The sight of it gave her a frisson. It reminded her always, as it lay solitary on the dark expanse, of a little tomb. And one day, passing through the long windows onto the stone terrace and down the steps into the garden, she had the happy thought of so arranging the flowers that they would be appropriate to one of the ladies on a future tragic occasion. Her first creation had been terrible. Tomb of Mademoiselle Anderson, in black pansies, lily of the valley, and a frill of heliotrope. It gave her a most intense, curious pleasure to hand Mrs. Anderson the potatoes at lunch, and at the same time to gaze beyond her at her triumph. It was like, oh, ciel, it was like handing potatoes to a corpse. The tomb of Madame was on the contrary almost gay. Foolish little flowers, half yellow, half blue, hung over the edge. Wisps of green trailed across, and in the middle there was a large scarlet rose. Cure Seignant, Marie had called it. But it did not look in the least like a cure Seignant. It looked flushed and cheerful, like mother emerging from the luxury of a warm bath. Millie's, of course, was all white. White stalks, little white rosebuds, with a sprig or two of dark box edging. It was mother's favorite. Poor innocent. Marie at the sideboard had to turn her back when she heard Mother exclaim, Isn't it pretty, Millie? Isn't it sweetly pretty? Most artistic. So original. And she had said to Marie, C'est très joli, Marie. Très original. Marie's smile was so remarkable that Millie, peeling a tangerine, remarked to Mother, I don't think she likes you to admire them. It makes her uncomfortable. But today, the glory of her opportunity made Marie feel quite faint as she seized her flower scissors. Trombeau, don bon monsieur. She was forbidden to cut the orchids that grew around the fountain basin. But what were orchids for if not for such an occasion? Her fingers trembled as the scissors snipped away. They were enough. Marie added two small sprays of palm. And back in the dining room, she had the happy idea of binding the palm together with a twist of gold thread, deftly torn off the fringe of the dining room curtains. The effect was superb. Marie almost seemed to see her beau monsieur, very small, very small at the bottom of the bowl, in full evening dress with a ribbon across his chest and his ears white as wax. What surprised Millie, however, was that Miss Anderson should pay any attention to Mr. Prodger's coming. She rustled to breakfast in her best black silk blouse, her Sunday blouse, with the large, painful-looking crucifix dangling over the front. Millie was alone when Miss Anderson entered the dining room. This was unfortunate, for she always tried to avoid being left alone with Miss Anderson. She could not exactly say why. It was a feeling. She had the feeling that Miss Anderson might say something about God— or something fearfully intimate. Oh, she would sink through the floor if such a thing happened. She would expire. Supposing she were to say, Millie, do you believe in our Lord? Heavens, 
it simply didn't bear thinking about. Good morning, my dear, said Miss Anderson, and her fingers, cold, pale, like church candles, touched Millie's cheek. Good morning, Miss Anderson. May I give you some coffee? said Millie, trying to be natural. Thank you, dear child, said Miss Anderson, and laughing her light, nervous laugh, she hooked on her eyeglasses and stared at the basket of rolls. And is it today that you expect your guest? she asked. Now why did she ask that? Why pretend when she knew perfectly well? That was all part of her strangeness. Or was it because she wanted to be friendly? Miss Anderson was more than friendly. She was genial. But there was always that something. Was she spying? People said at school that Roman Catholics spied. Miss Anderson rustled, rustled about the house like a dead leaf. Now she was on the stairs, now in the upstairs passage. Sometimes at night, when Millie was feverish, she woke up and heard that rustle outside her door. Was Miss Anderson looking through the keyhole? And one night, she actually had the idea that Miss Anderson had bored two holes in the walls above her head and was watching her from there. The feeling was so strong that next time she went into Miss Anderson's room, her eyes flew to the spot. To her horror, a large picture hung there. Had it been there before? Guest? The crisp breakfast roll broke in half at the word. Yes, I think it is, said Millie vaguely, and her blue flower-like eyes were raised to Miss Anderson in a vague stare. It will make quite a little change in our little party, said the much too pleasant voice. I confess, I miss very much the society of men. I have had such a great deal of it in my life. I think that ladies by themselves are apt to get a little... <laughs> and helping herself to cherry jam, she spilt it on the cloth. Millie took a large, childish bite out of her roll. There was nothing to reply to this. But how young Miss Anderson made her feel. She made her want to be naughty, to pour milk over her head or make a noise with a spoon. Ladies by themselves, went on Miss Anderson, who realized none of this, are very apt to find their interests limited. Why, said Millie, goaded to reply. People always said that, and it sounded most unfair. I think, said Miss Anderson, taking off her glasses and looking a little dim. It is the absence of political discussion. Oh, politics, cried Millie airily. I hate politics. Father always said, but here she pulled up short. She crimsoned. She didn't want to talk about father to Miss Anderson. Oh, look, look, a butterfly, cried Miss Anderson, softly and hastily. Look, what a darling. Her own cheeks flushed a slow red at the sight of the darling butterfly, fluttering so softly over the glittering table. That was very nice of Miss Anderson, fearfully nice of her. She must have realized that Millie didn't want to talk about father, and so she had mentioned the butterfly on purpose. Millie smiled at Miss Anderson, as she never had smiled at her before. And she said in her warm, youthful voice, He's a duck, isn't he? I love butterflies. 
I think they are great lambs. The morning whisked away as foreign mornings do. Mother had half decided to wear her hat at lunch. What do you think, Millie? Do you think as head of the house it might be appropriate? On the other hand, one does not want to do anything at all extreme. Which do you mean, Mother? Your mushroom or the jam pot? Oh, not the jam pot, dear. Mother was quite used to Millie's name for it. I somehow don't feel myself in a hat without a brim. And to tell you the truth, I am still not quite certain whether I was wise in buying the jam pot. I cannot help the feeling that if I were to meet father in it, he would be a little too surprised. More than once lately, mother went on quickly, I have thought of taking off the trimming, turning it upside down, and making it into a nice little work bag. What do you think, dear? But we must not go into it now, Millie. This is not the moment for such schemes. Come on to the balcony. I have told Marie we shall have coffee there. What about bringing that big chair with the nice substantial legs for Mr. Podger? Men are so fond of nice substantial. No, not by yourself, love. Let me help you. When the chair was carried out, Millie thought it looked exactly like Mr. Podger. It was Mr. Podger admiring the view. No, don't sit down on it. You mustn't, she cried hastily, as Mother began to subside. She put her arm through Mother's and drew her back into the salon. Happily, at that moment, there was a rustle, and Miss Anderson was upon them. In excellent time for once, she carried a copy of the Morning Post. I have been trying to find out from this, she said, lightly tapping the newspaper with her eyeglasses. Well, the Congress is sitting at present, but unfortunately, after reading my copy right through, I happened to glance at the heading and discovered it was five weeks old. Congress? Would Mr. Podger expect them to talk about Congress? The idea terrified Mother. Congress? The American Parliament, of course, composed of senators— Gray-bearded old men in frock coats and turned-down collars, rather like missionaries. But she did not feel at all competent to discuss them. I think we had better not be too intellectual, she suggested timidly, fearful of disappointing Miss Anderson, but more fearful still of the alternative. Still, one likes to be prepared, said Miss Anderson, and after a pause she added softly, One never knows. Ah, how true that is. One never does. Miss Anderson and Mother seemed both to ponder this truth. They sat silent with heads bent, as though listening to the whisper of the words. One never knows, said the pink-spotted dragons on the mantelpiece, and the Turks' heads pondered. Nothing is known. Nothing. Everybody just waits for things to happen, as they were waiting there for the stranger who came walking towards them through the sun and shadow under the budding plane trees, or driving, perhaps, in one of the small cotton-covered cabs. An angel passed over the Villa Martine. In that moment, a hovering silence, something beseeching seemed to lift, seemed to offer itself, as the flowers in the salon, uplifted, gave themselves to the light. Then Mother said, I hope Mr. Prodger will not find the scent of the mimosa too powerful. Men are not fond of flowers in a room as a rule. I have heard it causes actual hay fever in some cases. 
What do you think, Millie? Ought we perhaps? But there was no time to do anything. A long, firm trill sounded from the hall door. It was a trill so calm and composed, and unlike the tentative little push they gave the bell, that it brought them back to their seriousness of the moment. They heard a man's voice. The door clicked and shut again. He was inside. A stick rattled on the table. There was a pause, and then the door handle of the salon turned, and Marie, in frilled muslin cuffs and an apron shaped like a heart, ushered in Mr. Proger. Only Mr. Proger, after all. But whom had Millie expected to see? The feeling was there and gone again, that she would not have been surprised to see somebody quite different before she realized this wasn't quite the same Mr. Proger as before. He was smarter than ever, all brushed, combed, and shining. The ears that Marie had seen white as wax flashed as if they had been pink enameled. Mother fluttered up in her pretty little way, so hoping he had not found the heat of the day too trying to be out in. But happily, it was a little early in the year for dust. Then Miss Anderson was introduced. Millie was ready this time for that fresh hand, but she almost gasped. It was so very chill. It was like a hand stretched out to you from the water. Then together, they all sat down. Is this your first visit to the Riviera? Asked Miss Anderson graciously, dropping her handkerchief. It is, answered Mr. Proger composedly, and he folded his arms as before. I was in Florence until recently, but I caught a heavy cold. Florence, so... Mother began when the beautiful brass gong that burned like a fallen sun in the shadows of the hall began to throb. First, it was a low muttering. Then it swelled, it quickened, it burst into a clash of triumph under Marie's sympathetic fingers. Never had they been treated to such a performance before. Mr. Proger was all attention. That's a very fine gong, he remarked approvingly. We think it is so very oriental said Mother. It gives our little meals quite an eastern flavor. Shall we? Their guest was at the door bowing. So many gentlemen and only one lady, fluttered Mother. Oh, what I mean is the boot is on the other shoe. That is to say, come, Millie, come, dear. And she led the way to the dining room. Well, there they were. The cold, fresh napkins were shaken out of their charming shapes, and Marie handed the omelet. Mr. Proger sat on Mother's right, facing Millie, and Miss Anderson had her back to the long windows. But after all, why should the fact of their having a man with them make such a difference? It did. It made all the difference. Why should they feel so stirred at the sight of that large hand outspread, moving among the wine glasses? Why should the sound of that loud, confident, <clears throat> changed the very look of the dining room. It was not a favorite room of theirs as a rule. It was overpowering. They bobbed uncertainly at the pale table with a curious feeling of exposure. They were like those meek guests who arrive unexpectedly at the fashionable hotel and are served with whatever may be ready, while the real luncheon, the real guests, lurked important and contemptuous in the background. And although it was impossible for Marie to be other than deft, nimble, and silent, what heart could she have in ministering to that most uninspiring spectacle, three ladies dining alone? 
Now all was changed. Marie filled their glasses to the brim as if to reward them for some marvelous feat of courage. These timid English ladies had captured a live lion, a real one, smelling faintly of eau de cologne, and with a tip of handkerchief showing, white as a flake of snow. He is worthy of it, decided Marie, eyeing her orchids and palms. Mr. Prodger touched his hot plate with appreciative fingers. You'll hardly believe it, Mrs. Fawcett, he remarked, turning to Mother. But this is the first hot plate I've happened on since I left the States. I've begun to believe there were two things that just weren't to be had in Europe. One was a hot plate, and the other was a glass of cold water. Well, the cold water one can do without. But a hot plate is more difficult. I'd got so discouraged with the cold, wet ones I'd encountered everywhere that when I was arranging with Cook's agency about my room here, I explained to them, I don't care what the expense may be, but for mercy's sake, find me a hotel where I can get a hot plate by ringing for it. Mother, though outwardly all sympathy, found this a little bewildering. She had a momentary vision of Mr. Podger ringing for hot plates to be brought to him at all hours. Such strange things to want in any number. I have always heard the American hotels are so very well equipped, said Miss Anderson. Telephones in all the rooms and even tape machines. Millie could see Miss Anderson reading that tape machine. I should like to go to America awfully, she cried, as Marie brought in the lamb and set it before Mother. There's certainly nothing wrong with America, said Mr. Prodger, soberly. America's a great country. What are they, peas? Well, I'll just take a few. I don't eat peas as a rule. No, no salad, thank you. Not with the hot meat. But what makes you want to go to America? Miss Anderson ducked forward, smiling at Millie, and her glasses fell into her plate, just escaping the gravy. Because one wants to go everywhere was the real answer. But Millie's flower-blue gaze rested thoughtfully on Miss Anderson as she said, The ice cream. I adore ice cream. Do you? said Mr. Prodger, and he put down his fork. He seemed moved. So you're fond of ice cream, are you, Miss Fawcett? Millie transferred her dazzling gaze to him. It said she was. Well, said Mr. Prodger quite playfully, and he began eating again. I'd like to see you get it. I'm sorry we can't manage to ship some across. I like to see young people have what they want. It seems right somehow. Kind man. Would he have any more lamb? Lunch passed so pleasantly, so quickly, that the famous piece of gorgonzola was on the table in all its fatness and richness before there had even been an awkward moment. The truth was that Mr. Prodger proved most easy to entertain, most ready to chat. As a rule, men were not fond of chat, as Mother understood it. They did not seem to understand that it does not matter very much what one says. The important thing is not to let the conversation drop. Strange. Even the best men ignored that simple rule. They refused to realize that conversation is like a dear little baby that is brought in to be handed around. You must rock it, nurse it, keep it on the move if you want it to keep smiling. What could be simpler? But even father...
Mother winced away from memories that were not as sweet as memories ought to be. All the same, she could not help hoping that Father saw what a successful little lunch party it was. He did so love to see Millie happy, and the child looked more animated than she had done for weeks. She had lost that dreamy expression, which, though very sweet, did not seem natural at her age. Perhaps what she wanted was not so much eaten syrup as taking out of herself. I have been very selfish, thought Mother, blaming herself as usual. She put her hand on Millie's arm. She pressed it gently as they rose from the table. And Marie held the door open for the white and gray figure, for Miss Anderson, who peered short-sightedly, as though looking for something, for Mr. Proger, who brought up the rear, walking stately, with the benign air of a monsieur who had eaten well. Beyond the balcony, the garden, the palms, and the sea lay bathed in quivering brightness. Not a leaf moved. The oranges were little worlds of burning light. There was the sound of grasshoppers ringing their tiny tambourines and the hum of bees as they hovered as though to taste their joy in advance before burrowing close into the warm, wide, open stalks and roses. The sound of the sea was like a breath, was like a sigh. Did the little group on the balcony hear it? Mother's fingers moved among the black and gold coffee cups. Miss Anderson brought the most uncomfortable chair out of the salon and sat down. Mr. Proger put his large hand onto the yellow stone ledge of the balcony and remarked gravely, This balcony rail is just as hot as it can be. They say, said Mother, that the greatest heat of the day is at about half past two. We have suddenly noticed it is very hot then. Yes, it's lovely then, murmured Millie, and she stretched her hand to the sun. It's simply baking. Then you're not afraid of the sunshine, said Mr. Proger, taking his coffee from Mother. No, thank you. I won't take any cream. Just one lump of sugar. And he sat down, balancing the little chattering cup on his broad knee. No, I adore it, answered Millie, and she began to nibble the lump of sugar. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Fly and The Dove's Nest by Catherine Mansfield. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.